Well, it is a joy to be back with you guys this morning. Lord willing, this is going to be our final lesson in Lesson 2, or Chapter 2 of Forerunners of the Faith. And upon completing this chapter, after taking a break next weekend for Encounter, we will begin Part 2 of Forerunners of the Faith, which is on the patristic period of church history, spanning from roughly 100 A.D., to roughly 600 A.D. I'm looking forward to getting into the post-apostolic age of church history with you guys. I think we're going to learn a lot of really interesting material. But for our purposes today, we are going to wrap up the first century, and hopefully we will learn a lot from our study of this particular subject. I do need a volunteer to read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9 as our scripture reading to get us started. Can I get a volunteer? Sai? Perfect. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. And uh, as you flip to that portion of Scripture, let me get us started with a word of prayer, and we will dive right into our lesson. Let's go to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, it has been a joy just to fellowship this morning to talk about what's going on in the lives of all of these young people. And God, I just pray for your blessings upon them as they enter into a time of having to study and take semester exams. And Lord, with the semester coming to a close, all students can relate to the stress that can be. I pray, Father, that our time together this morning and and all of our formal gatherings as the church during this really busy end to the semester would be a time of rest and rejuvenation for these youth. Father, give them... Give them contentment in their circumstances. Help them to trust in your infinitely wise and holy and good providence for them that you are going to work out all the details of this week for their eternal good and for your glory. Father, help them to be good stewards of their studies. Help them to set aside time this week to um, ensure that they're doing everything they can to finish this semester on a high note. And Father, help us as adult leaders to encourage them and pray for them every time we have opportunities to do so that they might know the love we have for them, and ultimately, Father, that through the midst of all of these circumstances you've placed them into, that they would know your love for them in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now as we turn our attention to this lesson, Father, may this time be um, a time of worship, may it be a time of critical thinking, a time of thoughtful, interactive discussion. We love you, God, and we thank you for the privilege it is to have another Lord's Day together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, Cy, whenever you've got that passage pulled up, go ahead and read it for us. If you've got your Bible open to 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 9, feel free to follow along as Cy reads. Very good, Sai. Thank you for reading that passage. So, um, what do we see here? Why do you think this particular passage would apply to our, our consideration of the concluding years of the first century history of the church? What, what do you think? I mean, look, look at verses 3 and 4 particularly. Peter's saying that mockers are going to come And they're going to be saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is Jesus? 
Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Jesus isn't coming back. You guys are fools for believing in him. It's been 30 some years since he's come back or since he went to since he went to be with the father. He hadn't come back yet, um, but they, they thought it was foolishness, right? And think about the disciples. Think about when Jesus was about to ascend, right? As we covered at the book, in the book of Acts at the very beginning, when they asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? Is it, is it coming, Lord? Is the restoration of Israel coming? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times and the epics. And then he commissions them to go and to spread the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. So in light of that backdrop, what do you think, what do you think is the significance of this passage for us? Okay, Peter's writing this in the, the mid-60s AD, okay? Let's just say about 30 to 35 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. How much more does this passage apply to us in 2021? Just as we get started. How many of you guys have heard unbelievers laugh at you or at other Christians for your belief? What is one of the biggest reasons why they mock you? Because it makes them uncomfortable. Makes them uncomfortable. That's good. They think they know more than you do. Yeah, it's very true. Um, what do they think of the merits of Christianity, though? The merits, yeah, the value, the, the, the truth claims of Christianity. Do they believe in them? Yeah, that's, that's definitely, I think, a factor. Absolutely. Um, do, do you think, though, that they're a little bit hesitant to believe that a human being rose from the dead and, and is saying that all of human history is centered upon this one obscure man in a, in a place thousands of miles from where we live in a time thousands of years ago from where we are right now, that all of human history is ultimately rooted and grounded in this man who lived, died, supposedly rose from the grave, and is going to come back to judge every person who has ever lived. What do you think people think about that claim? In light of the text we just read together. I can tell you what they think about it. They think it's the dumbest thing that you could ever imagine. You mean this, this, this figure from 2,000 years ago in a culture where women were subjugated almost to the level of slaves, in some cases probably even below the level of slaves, in a largely illiterate context, without any of the technological or moral advancements that we've made over the past 2,000 years, you mean to tell me that all of reality was not only created by him, but is ultimately going to come to its completion and its telos, its fulfillment, in his judgment of the living and the dead? You mean to tell me all of that is about him? No, it's not about Jesus of Nazareth. It's foolishness. That's what I wanted you guys to see. Peter is addressing that, guys. In that verse we just read, he's saying, guys, in these last days, and biblically, if you look at the New Testament, this is actually often misunderstood by Christians. People, every, every generation of Christians said, man, we're in the last days. Uh, Jesus' return is coming soon. Well, we don't know the day or the hour when Christ is returning. It could happen at any minute. But if you look at the New Testament, when the phrase the last days is used, it's referring to that period of human history between the time Jesus ascended into heaven 
and the time that Jesus descends to earth to judge the living and the dead. So we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years now. If we use that motif, if we understand that, that uh, theme that we see running throughout the New Testament. But what Peter's saying is between the time that Christ has gone into glory to be with the Father and the time that he comes back to judge the living and the dead, you're going to have all sorts of people mocking you for your faith. They're going to be saying, he's not coming back because he's dead and he's going to stay dead forever. And you know what Peter says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He says, no, no, he's not dead. God is actually patient. That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. God is patient. He says that God, in verses 7 through 9, he says, God is preserving the present heavens and earth from fire. He is keeping reality for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men, because with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. Therefore, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What's Peter saying? He's saying this. Jesus won't come back a millisecond before every person for whom he's died for is redeemed. Jesus will not return a second before every person for whom he died has come to saving faith in him. That's why he hasn't come back. There are still souls to be saved. There is still glory for God to receive. There is still work to be done for the advancement of God's heavenly kingdom. So, Peter writes these words for us roughly 2,000 years ago. They were extremely relevant in those days. Imagine the persecution. Imagine the ridicule that those first century Christians faced for their foolish faith. How much more so 2,000 years ago do we need to be reminded of that as we now turn to consider the final years, the final decades of the first century history of the church. Notice in your workbooks, if you have them, I'm going to give us a running start just to remind you of the context, and then we're going to fill in three blanks. Busnitz giving us the context of Roman numeral 7 that's titled After the Book of Acts. He writes, With the closing chapter of Acts, the Spirit-inspired record of church history ends. Nonetheless, with indirect evidence from certain biblical passages and historical information from other sources, we can piece together a general sense of what happened in the final few decades of first century church history. And here are your blanks. The evidence suggests Paul was released from house arrest. He apparently traveled to Troas and Miletus. Let me spell that for you. Uh, Troas is spelled... T-R-O-A-S, Troas, and Miletus, M-I-L-E-T-U-S, Troas and Miletus. Did everybody get that if you're taking notes? Everybody get that spelling? Very good. Troas and Miletus. So, um, he apparently traveled to Troas and Miletus. The, the next blank is Crete, C-R-E-T-E. And the last blank is Spain, S-P-A-I-N. I think y'all probably know how to spell Spain. So Paul traveled after being released from house arrest to Troas and Miletus. He traveled to Crete. He even may have traveled to Spain. Some of the earliest church fathers confirmed that Paul made it to Spain, so we have certain grounds for believing that it is possible that Paul succeeded in his ultimate effort, which was to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the furthest corners of the first century known world, which would have been Spain in the west and Asia Minor upwards of, of Russia, modern-day Russia, and the, and the far east of the first century world. Paul very well may have been successful in doing that. We don't know for sure... But it is likely to believe on the basis of the testimony of the early church fathers that Paul very well may have taken the gospel literally 
to all the ends of the world in that first century sense. Remember, in the first century, the Roman Empire was the hub or the heart of the world. Nobody knew North America, South America, Antarctica, all these parts of the world that we know about today. In those days, from Spain on the far western side of the first century world and modern-day Russia all the way on the eastern side. Think about that. Paul very well may have taken the gospel to every part of that area of the first century Roman Empire. Uh, During this time, we also know that Paul wrote the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy and Titus. So Paul is not only busy taking the gospel everywhere, he's also continuing to write what would become our New Testament. Now, do you have a question for group discussion in light of Paul's missionary efforts? My question for you is this. I'd love for us to consider this as a group. Given Paul's tremendous efforts to advance the gospel throughout the entire known world within the first century Roman Empire, how do you think modern-day Christians should improve upon their efforts to be faithful to the Great Commission mandate? Does everybody remember what the Great Commission is? Somebody give it, for, uh, give it to me. What is it? In a nutshell, Michael. Uh, God has preached to all the nations. Yeah, preached what to all the nations? gospel right preach the gospel to all the nations we're and, and when we preach the gospel to all nations what are we trying to make starts with a d we want to make disciples of all the nations and what are we going to do after we make disciples we're going to starts with a b baptize them, baptize them right so we're making we're not just making decisions for christ right and this is key the great commission is not just getting people to walk an aisle say a prayer or sign a card The Great Commission is to make genuine, lifelong followers, converts, and students of Jesus Christ so that they might be baptized in obedience to His commandments and that they might go and likewise make other disciples through their um, evangelism and missionary efforts. Now, think about Paul, guys. I mean, his... Earthly ministry was probably about 30 years in length, give or take a few years. He didn't have an airplane. He didn't have a car. He had to travel by foot or by ship. He suffered shipwreck experiences. But he managed to take the gospel literally to the farthest corners of the first century known world. How should that reality affect us 21st century Christians in our efforts to take the gospel to those in our lives and those around the world. What do you guys think? Cy? I think it should motivate. I think it should motivate. You have to have more resources to go out so it makes it worse when you don't. Absolutely. So, so how many times have you heard this? Man, I just want to go on a mission trip, right? I, I just want to go and, and take the gospel to this particular part of the world. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Or maybe you've said that yourself at some point. I know a few people. Guys, as important as global missions are, and maybe God is going to call some of you to that end, quite simply, we have oftentimes a, a difficult time simply sharing the gospel with the people in our own families and the people within our own communities. Okay? Global missions is so important. Paul understood that, right? But before we can even get to Paul's level of taking the gospel all over the world, which we should ultimately strive to do, we should support missionaries and ministries that do that, we just need to get off of our seat and just take the gospel to our own family members and our own friends right here in Edna. And, and as, as Sai said, we should be motivated. I mean, this man walked miles. He, he, he suffered shipwreck. He got beaten. He got mocked and ridiculed. He was put in prison for several years. And he still persevered. He shared the gospel with those closest to him both in terms of his own family members and in terms of those closest to him in his own local area. He shared it with whoever. He shared it with people he was in prison with. 
He shared it with those who were in governmental authority positions when he was on trial. Paul was an evangelizing missionary machine. And though you and I will never be the Apostle Paul, we can certainly use the gifts God's given us to the best of our ability wherever He calls us. You know, some of you guys want to be a stay-at-home mom. That, that's literally what you want to do with your life. My friends, if that's you, women, young ladies, if God's calling you to be a stay-at-home mom, man, love your husband well, share the gospel with your children, raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, share the gospel with the friends that you're going to make in that particular calling. Some of you men or women are going to be called to be doctors or lawyers or businessmen or women. Um, man, make friends with your coworkers. Share the gospel with them. Invite them to church. Just because you don't go all over the world like Paul did sharing the gospel doesn't mean you can't be found faithful with the giftedness God's given you and with the vocation He's entrusted to you. You can still be found faithful in bearing witness to the gospel and still have an impact like Paul had an impact in what God called him to do. Any other thoughts or questions about Paul's missionary efforts before we move on? Very good. Okay, so um, now we are we are now mid-60s. Okay, mid-60s. And for those who have studied first century history, whether you're talking about the history of the church or whether you're talking about just secular historians thinking through the Roman Empire, there was a seismic event that took place in 64 AD that would alter the course really of church history and Roman Empire history from that point moving forward. You had a line drawn in the sand in 64 AD, and that line was this. In the summer of AD 64, a massive fire broke out in the city of Rome. Much of the city was either destroyed or severely damaged. When public opinion began to suspect Emperor Nero was behind the fire, he shifted the blame to the Christians and began to persecute them in horrific ways. The ancient Roman historian Tacitus provides a record of these events, noting that Christians were sometimes lit on fire like human torches, or sewn in animal skins and fed to wild beasts in the Roman Colosseums. So, we don't know for sure, but there is reasons to believe that Nero was dissatisfied with the architecture of the Roman Empire. He, he wanted to have more sophisticated architecture and infrastructure, basically the way that the Roman Empire was set up. He wanted it to be bigger and better and more sophisticated. So secular and even Christian historians speculate that Nero began to order those of whom were in government official positions to organize widespread fires throughout the Roman Empire. And because he didn't want to take the blame for being responsible for much of the destruction of Rome, he shifted that blame to the Christians. The Christians, mind you, this point in the first century, they were already social outcasts. It'd be interesting to know that the word atheist was actually applied to Christians during this time. Because the Christians refused to worship the pantheon of the Roman gods, it was just assumed that they didn't believe in any god. Of course, Christians took every opportunity they could to correct that misconception and say, no, 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 we believe in just the one true living God, not your myriads and myriads of false gods that are being worshipped throughout the Roman Empire. So as you can imagine, things were not looking good for the body of Christ around this time. On top of that, we also know that... Um, these first century Christians were being regarded as cannibals. They were being regarded as a threat to society. How did that happen? Well, word got out about this thing that Christians did where they eat the body of somebody and they drink their blood. We know that, of course, uh, metaphorically and spiritually as the Lord's Supper. 
But word got out, misconceptions were running amok throughout the Roman Empire. And before you knew it, you've got Christians regarded as social outcasts. They don't worship the gods that we worship. They're atheists. They are being regarded as a threat to human society. Uh, they're cannibals. They eat people and drink their blood in their, their private gatherings. And um, Because Christians refer to those gatherings as love feasts, there is also speculation that they were involved in incest and pedophilia. So the Christians are really ostracized leading up to 64 AD. And then Nero wrecks havoc, burns much of the Roman Empire, and then he says, those social outcasts did it. Let's get them. And and then the tables turn. The tables turn. Now, I want somebody to read, just to get a a glimpse of what Scripture is saying. Again, this book would have been written around this time, mid-60s A.D. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's just read verses 1 through 9. We'll split it up. Verses 1 through 4. I'll read verses 1 through 4. Who wants to take 5 through 9? Or I'll take verses 1 through 5 because chapter or verse 6 is a new sentence. So who wants to read verses 6 through 9 of 1 Peter 1? Wit, thank you. I'll read verses 1 through 5. So as, as we read this text and as you follow along in your copy of God's Word, I want you to, I want you to think about the historical context. Why did Peter write these words? What's happening around the people who are receiving this letter originally? Put yourself in their shoes. Peter writes this, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, to, to those who have had to run for your lives... Because you're being persecuted by the Roman Emperor Nero. I'm writing this to you. Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. There's a Trinitarian reference, by the way. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wit, read verses 6 through 9. Very good. All right, so I want you to think about what we just read there, okay? In light of 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 9, particularly with a special focus on verses 6 through 9, how do the historical details of everything that was going on at that period of human history in the Roman Empire bear powerful witness to the power of God in salvation? and his purposes for allowing suffering to take place in the lives of Christians. So in light of 1 Peter chapter 1, in light of the first century historical details that we just discussed about the Roman Empire, how can we reflect on God's power and his purposes for allowing Christians to undergo trials and suffering in this life? What do you think about that? Yeah, one, one more time. So, um, in light of 1 Peter 1, uh, particularly with a special focus on verses 6 through 9, 
In light of everything that was going on at the time that this letter would have been written in the first century Roman Empire, in light of all those details, how should we reflect or think on the power of God in salvation and God's purposes for allowing Christians to undergo trials and suffering? Wow. Did you hear that, guys? Witt thinks we should rejoice when trials and suffering occurs. Now, why in the world would you think that, Witt? Did you hear that, guys? And, and, and by the way, uh, as Witt said under his breath, well, it was actually Peter who said that. The answer is always in the text, guys. These aren't trick questions. Uh, the answer is always in the text. Don't, notice this. Wit, wit hit it right out of the park. Peter's saying, listen, guys, I know things are t- I know times are tough. I know things aren't looking very well right now, but rejoice greatly in this. Rejoice in that through these trials, the proof of your faith, although it's being tested by fire, the proof of your faith is being authenticated. Your faith is being validated. It's being shown as genuine. You are growing in the affirmation and assurance that as you persevere through these hardships and these trials, you are growing in your assurance and affirmation that you belong to God. Why? Because you are enduring them and you have not recanted your faith in the midst of these trials. You still love God. You still want to serve Him. You still want to honor Him. You still want to share the gospel with other people. Even though you don't see Him, you love Him. These trials are confirming the reality of your faith, and they're also allowing you to grow more and more into the likeness and character of Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately how we need to view trials. I know we've talked a lot about that. Um, in our study of James and in previous Sunday school lessons, so I won't belabor the point, but wit very good. That's, that's really the answer that I wanted us to consider. I wanted us to see that trials and suffering is a powerful tool used by God to bolster our assurance of salvation and to uh, quickly facilitate our sanctification, to allow us to continue to be conformed and grown into the character of Christ. As hard as they may be, as heartbreaking as they may be, as difficult as they may be, trials are for your spiritual good and for my spiritual good as a Christian. We have to believe that on the testimony of Scripture. And and guys, let's be honest. At least right now, none of us are going through any trials that can compare to what these first century Christians were going through. Am I right? I mean, we're not being... Forced to be lit on fire in a in a uh, garden pally or a garden party at the palace in um, Rome, we're not being um, fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum for sport. We're not getting beaten to death because people blame us for lighting an entire city on fire. I mean, we got it pretty good compared to these first century Christians when we reflect on the trials and hardships that we have to face, right? We should be all the more grateful that God is so kind to allow our trials, again, trials are trials, they're hard, they're difficult, but by God's grace, we've got it very, very good in 2021 compared to how some of our other brothers and sisters have had to have it in previous generations, or even right now in other parts of the world. Think of the Middle East. Think about all the persecution that our our brethren have to go through over there. Just some food for thought as we continue our study. Now, during this persecution, the persecution that was being carried out by the Roman Emperor Nero, we know that the Apostle Peter was arrested and was executed by being crucified upside down. We know that prior to his death, Peter wrote two epistles from Rome to churches in Asia Minor, warning them about the persecution that they were facing and the threat of false teachers that would arise during this time of persecution. Just as, a, as an interesting vignette from the New Testament, and really I, I think it's a powerful testimony to the um, knowledge 
and power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Somebody quickly pull up John 21, verses 18 and 19. John 21, verses 18 and 19. Who want to read that one? Hannah, thank you. So he's talking to Peter there just right after Jesus restores Peter um, after Peter's denial of him. And what did you all notice about that text without me just flat out giving you the answer? What is, what is Jesus saying there? Peter's repented. He's been restored. He's ready to follow after Jesus to be faithful post-resurrection. And what is Jesus telling Peter about right here? What's he saying? What's he saying, Peter? You've repented, you've confessed, and I've restored you. You're going to be the leader among the apostles. But in light of that, what's he saying? Answer is always in the text. What's that, Joanna? He's going to die for it. And he specifically tells them what kind of death he's going to die. He's He's going to die by crucifixion. And we know, as I just read before we read this passage, Peter was crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. Jesus is saying, Peter, you've repented, you're restored, you are mine, you will be a leader, you will be used greatly by God to build my church in the first century, but you are going to die for it. Follow me, he says. In light of that, follow me. Now, So we see in that text, right, we see Christ's ability to accurately prophesy about future events. We're going to revisit that theme here in just a few moments. So we see Christ's deity displayed in the accuracy of his prophecy of what kind of death Peter would die. But number two, and this is a a very interesting intertextual detail. Look at verse 19. He says, Jesus said this signifying by what kind of death Peter would, here it is, glorify God. Have you ever thought about that reality? The fact that the death of the believer is a way in which God receives glory, especially when they die in standing for the faith, defending the faith, proclaiming the faith. That glorifies God. God is pleased with that kind of death. And even if you don't die defending the faith, sharing the faith on the mission field, in your death, in my death, if we hold fast to our faith, if we die in faith, that death glorifies God. I think that should be an encouragement to us as we um, reflect on the brevity of life, the certainty of our future death. Guys, we need to think about death quite often because it could happen at any second. And in a millisecond, when you die, you will be face-to-face with your God. We need to be prepared to die, and we need to be prepared to die well. That is not being morbid, that is being biblical. But as Christians, we can rejoice in our death, right? We know that There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to long for that moment in which faith becomes sight. We need to pray that God would give us the grace to have that perspective that death is no longer an enemy but a friend because our faith will be made sight. Now moving on, 
Buznitz continuing his, his flow of giving us the overview of the final decades of the first century church. He writes that Paul was also arrested and imprisoned in a Roman dungeon. This was his second imprisonment. And this imprisonment provides us with the context for his second letter to Timothy. It was shortly after penning that epistle that Paul was beheaded as a martyr for Christ. And this really builds quite nicely on that theme of thinking often about the certainty of our death and the brevity of human life. Notice what Paul writes. I'll read it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is Paul. His final words recorded in the New Testament canon, he is about to be executed. And this is what he writes. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. How do these dying words expressed by the Apostle Paul illustrate the way that we as Christians ought to perceive dying? What do you guys think? exactly right yeah guys i mean we know god right now if you know christ as your lord and savior you have a personal relationship with god right now death should not be feared it should be regarded as a sweet transition where faith becomes sight there's no fear in death for the believer we need to pray that god would increase our faith when we do fear death one of the best ways though to prepare to die well is to think about it every single day and give praise to God for the work He has done in allowing you to know Him personally and allowing you to no longer be afraid of what happens with the cessation of our earthly lives. Now regarding the book of Hebrews, we haven't talked about the authorship of that book. Um, it's interesting that Buznitz notes that uh, his Business notes that Nero's persecution is what provided the historical backdrop for the book of Hebrews. In that book, we find the author warning his readers not to return to Judaism, but to continue on in their faithfulness to New Covenant Christianity. Throughout church history, most commentators believe that Paul was closely involved with the authorship of Hebrews, um, some have given that uh, Luke may have been the author of the book of Hebrews because the Greek closely ref uh, reflects his Greek in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Some have suggested that maybe Barnabas or Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews because of their Jewish ties. But nevertheless, um, we don't know who definitively wrote the book of Hebrews. We do know that the theology is very strikingly Pauline. It's similar to... Paul's theology that we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, but in terms of its syntax, in terms of the way that the book of Hebrews is written, it's very close to Luke. So I believe, uh, based on my own studies and based on what I have been told and what I have learned, I think that it's likely that Hebrews was a sermon preached by Paul or a, a teaching lesson preached by Paul, and Luke recorded it. So we have... Luke's penmanship in the recording of Hebrews, but we have Paul's theology. And remember, Paul and Luke were traveling companions around the time when Hebrews was written, early to mid-60s. So take that for whatever you want to take it as. I, I just think it's it's very interesting little nugget for us to reflect on. But moving on, Nero's persecution of the Christians in the Roman Empire ended with his death by suicide in AD 68. It was around that time that a revolt began in Judea that resulted in Jerusalem being attacked and the temple was destroyed eventually in AD 70 by the army of the Roman Emperor Vespasian. According to tradition, the Christians in Jerusalem fled the city prior to the arrival of the Roman army. 
They found refuge in Pella, a town within the jurisdiction of King Herod Agrippa II. This was the same king before whom Paul gave a defense in Acts 26. It is possible that Herod may have remembered Paul and was therefore inclined to grant asylum and safe passage to these first century believers. Now let me encourage you by reflecting on the deity of Christ and reflecting on the accuracy of Scripture. I want us to take a look at Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 24. I'm going to read this. It's a big passage of Scripture, so I would just encourage you to follow along. And as we read this, okay, here's what I want you to think about. As we read this text, I want us to think about how this passage demonstrates the deity of Christ and the trustworthiness of Scripture in light of the temple being destroyed with all of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So think about that. Think about that historical backdrop in the light of what Christ testifies in the early 30s, some 30 to 35 years prior to Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD. Listen to this. Verse 5, Luke 21. Feel free to follow along in your copy of Scripture. While some were talking about the temple and that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus said, As for these things which you were looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned Jesus, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Verse 8, And Jesus said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go with them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then Jesus continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near." Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountaintops, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, and will be led captive into all the nations." And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So think about that. What do we see Christ prophesying about in this text? That's the first thing I want you guys to note here. What's he saying? What's going to happen to Jerusalem? It's going to be destroyed. Look at verses 20. Through 24 again. Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies. People who are in Judea are going to need to flee to the mountains. They're going to need to leave the city. Those outside the city need to stay out of the city. And he says in verse 24, end of verse 23, there's going to be wrath brought upon the people of Jerusalem. Verse 24, many will fall by the edge of the sword. People are going to be led captive. Outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot by Gentiles. Now, how do we understand that in light of what we know happened in 70 AD? Did that 
prophecy come to pass? Yes, it did. Look, listen to this again. According to tradition, first century history, most explicitly testified to by Josephus, the most famous first century Jewish historian that lived in the Roman Empire in that era, the Christians, listen to this, this is, this is so encouraging for us. The Christians in Jerusalem, when they caught wind that Rome was going to plunder the city, they fled. They took off outside of Jerusalem. They, they found refuge in Pella. And they escaped the horrific events that Christ prophesied about in this text in Luke 21. My friends, this is a powerful indication of the deity of Christ, that He is God, that He is all-knowing as God. He accurately predicted this event basically 35 years before it would actually happen. And also, another encouragement that we have from this text is that the Word of God is true. Scripture is trustworthy. It harmonizes it fits together within itself without any contradiction or error. That is what we should see from texts like this. A, a brilliant reminder for us as we reflect upon a very um, significant historical nugget from the late 60s, early 70s AD. And with that in mind, we now transition into the 80s and 90s. And there should be one more blank in this section of your workbook. Busnitz notes that the 80s and 90s featured the ministry of the Apostle John. That is that blank, John. At some point, John moved from Jerusalem to Ephesus, ministering in the region of Asia Minor. Um, I'm going to read to you what Busnitz notes here about John. And then I'm going to give you a... Another perspective to think about because there is some debate on what Busnitz notes here. But he says that John likely wrote his gospel in his three epistles in the 80s. That would be the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, Busnitz notes that John's exile to Patmos probably occurred in the mid-90s during the reign of the emperor Domitian. It was during his exile that he received a final revelation from the Lord Jesus and because John was the last surviving apostle, the book of Revelation is also the last book of the New Testament canon. Now, New Testament scholars historically have gone back and forth as to when John's literature was written. There are some, of course, like I just quoted from Busnitz, who see the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation all written either during the 80s or 90s A.D. However, others see reason for believing that John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, between the 60s and 70s. So there is room for debate. Um, I have gone back and forth here. I currently believe there are more grounds for seeing a pre-70 A.D. authorship of John's literature than a post-70, that is an 80s or 90s authorship. So for the benefit of the listener and to those here today, just know that when we're talking about the authorship of John's portion of the New Testament, there is some fluidity of views as to when it was written, either in the 60s or in the 80s and into the 90s. So um, just keep that in mind as you study those portions of the New Testament, that it's not exactly a clear-cut and dried uh, consensus on when that part of Scripture was written. Now, I do have a question for us to consider. And it really comes back to what Busnitz concluded with, this uh, last sentence. Let me read that last sentence and then let me ask the question so it's fresh in your mind. Busnitz says that because John was the last surviving apostle, the book of Revelation is also the last book of the New Testament canon, okay? So John's the last apostle that lived. Book of Revelation, which is the last book that John wrote in our canon, it's the last book included in our New Testament canon, right? So in light of that correlation, my question for us is simply this. On what basis 
can we know that the New Testament comes to a conclusion? It comes to a close with John's writing of the book of Revelation and the death of John. How is there a connection, in other words, between the death of John and the conclusion or the closing of the New Testament canon? What's the connection there? Sai. I have a question. Yeah. John the Baptist, yeah. Yeah, he died before Paul. How did he write Revelations? So John, so so John the Baptist is not the author of John, the Gospel of John, First, Second, and Third John, and Revelation. Um, that's John the son of Zebedee, who wrote that, who wrote those books. So yeah, John the Baptist was was long gone before any of John's writings uh, in the New Testament were provided. That's a great question, guys. I used to think that. I was like, wait a minute. So. You're telling me that John the Baptist wrote all this stuff, but he died during the ministry of Jesus? Like, how does that make any sense? Great question. Very important question to make sure we're clear on. Would it probably be illiterate, John the Baptist? Maybe. Um, most Jews were illiterate. Some weren't. Um, for example, Matthew, tax collectors were not illiterate. They could read and write. Um, Luke, historian, uh, could read and write. Paul, was a Jew, but he was highly educated, could read and write. Um, Peter, we don't know if he could write. However, um, we do know that he had assistance in writing, First and Second Peter. And in those days, it was not uncommon for um, somebody to dictate what they wanted written down, and somebody who could write would write it down uh, on their behalf. So that's exactly what we know happened with First and Second Peter. So Peter dictated what he wanted written down, and somebody else, uh, Sylvanus, likely, uh, because we know he he was uh, Peter's, um, um, I guess you could say, uh, what's the word? It starts with an A. Uh, animus, I think, is the word. Or Emmaus, let me see. Let me make sure I give you the right term for that because it's a, it's a, uh, I think it's animus. I can't ever pronounce it. So for the listener, I'm trying to get this down. Yeah, it's called an animus. So yes, so that that is the technical term for those who would, if somebody wanted something written down. It would be dictated, and then the animus, that is the person who would actually write down what was being dictated, that was, that was the role that they had. But to, to this question, guys, really quickly here, I want to make sure you all are clear on this connection. What's the connection between the death of all the apostles, John being the last of them, and the closing or the conclusion of the New Testament? What's that connection? Yeah, what's the connection between the death of the apostles, John being the last of them, and the conclusion or the closing of the New Testament canon? In other words, why should we not expect there to be more New Testament writings since all the apostles have died? Hannah? Because only the apostles have the authority to write scripture. Yep. Correct. Yeah, it wouldn't have the authority, the inerrancy, the um, the inspiration. Only the apostles. This is this is crucial. The big A apostles, the eleven. Right, Judas died, so the eleven, Matthias and Paul, big A apostles. Only those people had the authority to either write scripture or to supervise the writing of scripture. Um. Which, of course, you know, Mark was not a big A apostle. He was supervised by Peter. Um, Luke was not a big A apostle. He was supervised by Paul. James was not a big A apostle. However, given his role in the Jerusalem council, he likely would have been heavily influenced by Peter. Um, So every single part of our New Testament can ultimately be traced back to either a big A apostle who wrote it or a big A apostle who would have supervised it directly. Um, that is important connection to note. Um, Hannah, very good on your drawing that connection for us. Well, that takes us now to Roman numeral 8. 
There's no blanks for you to fill. I'm just going to read this for you guys and, of course, for the benefit of our listener who may be following along with us. Roman numeral 8, titled Coming Full Circle, and this brings Lesson 2 to a conclusion. Our curriculum says the following. A survey of the apostolic age of church history, that is the first century of church history, teaches us many important lessons. Here are three to consider. Number one, the good news of salvation is intended for all people of every ethnic background and language group. Sinners can be forgiven and justified through faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. The offer of the gospel is possible because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number two, followers of the Lord Jesus are called to be his witnesses, speaking with conviction and standing with courage. The apostles modeled that kind of boldness. In the face of growing hostility and even violent persecution, they stood firm for Christ no matter the cost. As Peter told the religious leaders in Acts 5, quote, we must obey God rather than men, end quote. And that ought to be our mindset too. And lastly, number three, the Lord has been faithful to fulfill his promise to build the church, to observe the gospel prevail against all odds from the book of Acts to the present is to see that promise unfold. The church continues to grow even in the face of severe opposition. For those who are part of Christ's church, how encouraging it is to know that we are part of a movement that cannot fail because it is guaranteed by God himself. My friends, I pray and I trust that will be of great encouragement to you. God's word, his purpose to build the church, to sustain it until the return of Christ, to redeem every person whom Jesus Christ gave his life for. All of those realities are true and we can rest in them. You should have great comfort and encouragement as we reflect on the power and purposes of God as are supremely testified to in Scripture. But as we've studied over the past 13 weeks, they are also testified to throughout the course of church history. And Lord willing, as we now transition into the patristic era, that is the second through sixth centuries of church history, my prayer for us is that we will continue to see God's faithfulness and His trustworthiness verified again and again and again in the next aspect of our survey of church history, the patristic era. Let's close in prayer, though, in the meantime, as we prepare for our time of corporate worship, and we will be dismissed. Just a reminder, um, there is church conference tonight, 530, and um, you guys are also encouraged to come to our gatherings on Monday nights from 630 to 830 at the Parsonage, going through J.C. Riles, a call to prayer. Um, If you need a ride, I'll be more than happy to provide you with a ride as well as Wednesday night to prayer meeting. We will be in prayer meeting this week, uh, as well as in the weeks to come as we have opportunities to gather with our church in the midst of our ongoing conflict. But let's pray, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, what a joy it is to have considered and concluded our study of the book of Acts, the first century record of your work in and through the church. Father, we have learned so much, and I feel as if we've barely scratched the surface of the remarkable work that you accomplished during that era of church history. Father, I pray we'd be greatly encouraged by the truths that we have reflected on and discussed. Lord, I pray that we would be motivated to see the value and worth of studying church history so that we might learn from generations past, learn from faithfulness of of the saints that you've raised up to serve you in the past, but also learn from the mistakes that were carried out by the godly men and women that you've raised up and by those, of course, Lord, who were either false teachers or false converts or those who tried to persecute the church. Help us to learn from the highs and the lows of all that has taken place in the past so that we might not repeat the same mistakes and that we might continue to build on the positives in our context as we lay the foundation for future generations to come in accordance with your providence. Father, I thank you for all the young men and women who are represented in this room, their families, God, I pray that you would continue to draw them to yourself, continue to help them find ultimate satisfaction, not in their extracurriculars, not in their identities, um, 
and labels that they have come to be known as by their peers, but Lord, that their ultimate satisfaction would come in the identity and label they have as your adopted son or daughter in Christ. Father, give them a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and to seek your face daily, to magnify you where you've called them and placed them, and to take your gospel to those you've placed around them. As we've learned from the first century church, to be faithful to the Great Commission mandate as we leave these walls and go and and dwell within those in our community. Bless us now as we leave this place, Father. Help us to honor you and our expressions of corporate worship with those gathered at FBC Edna. And bless the rest of our Lord's Day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.